Um, but then I guess I want to talk about, like, love of uh, place as well. Of course, yeah. Go for it. To bring it back to what I was saying earlier, like, I am currently feel like I am in love with and I'm continuously f- falling more in love with the place where I live um, because of the forest that it is and the beings I sh- share that place with. And I am noticing how much that relationship to that place is giving me the energy to do other things or like the energy to calm down the energy to be creative the energy to look at myself more honestly and to me that's like a reciprocal loving relationship it feels like the place loves me back Mm, that's so nice (laughs) yeah i feel like i think the love of place is expanding all the time for me, like, and the appreciation for my surroundings and place of belonging is expanding. And this is like a very superficial way of saying it. But I I think about when I used to go on like road trips when I was a kid or something, and I would like look out the window and be like, "Ugh, this is just desert or like, this Mm -hmm. is just like, trees boring you know um and and now just i can appreciate the like beauty in in most outdoor places or like things that because i understand how it supports me or like how it supports Mm -hmm. everybody else or um these kinds of things and i feel more awestruck by plants knowing a bit about them or uh, having been acquainted with them so i feel like these kinds of deepening relationship feels yeah exactly mutually yeah i love and i feel supported and loved by the you know the ecosystem i guess that i'm in Hmm. um and i'm i'm a part of that it feels mutual and i want to give more and more back to that and i mean i think that you know part of even what i do with my time is acquainting people with plants so that they have the beginning of that, of that, like, obviously there are many people who have a much deeper relationship with the land than I do. Um, but it's like a goal of mine to always deepen it. And to always like show people, remind people the ways that they are already interwoven with the land and all of that. And I think that that is a huge, huge part of love. Yeah. Thinking about that in my own, I had this realization, like, when the attack on Palestine started that like, mm-hmm. and I think I've talked to you about it, but really f- I, I grew up in a bunch of different places. And so, and my family is not from where I've spent most of my life. And so I don't have in kind of intergenerational like connection to place. Mm-hmm. And I'm now like trying to develop that. I'm trying to build a relationship with place like intentionally and like in a deeper way and yeah when the when the when the stuff and when the you know the genocide in palestine started i those things connected for me that it's like a lot of the people that are being killed are do have those kind of connections to where they're living and how lucky they are to have that and how tragic it is that it's being taken away in this way yeah, and that, I mean, of course, that expands also to all colonization, right? And what already has happened and is happening in the United States. But just seeing it so accelerated um, in Palestine or that part of the world is like, yeah, I don't know. I'm like trying to, trying to have that kind of relationship to place in my life and realizing how important it can be to me. And knowing that there's people in the world that have been doing that building those kind of relationships for like many generations and it can just be like taken from all of them all at once because someone else has more weapons or money is like fucking yeah it's hard to look at yeah and i guess to bring it back a a bit i i think that the experience of like for me of thinking about that that kind of thing and um feeling feeling what i feel as a result is um is a way that like building a loving relationship to place has grown my empathy for other people as well you know it's like a it's like a relationship that's affecting the way i'm experiencing the world and the events that are happening around me and it definitely 
the 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 rage that I feel as a result and the uh, grief that I feel as a result of those emotions is something that gives me energy to do other things, mm-hmm. and that feels like a source of strength and is an important process for me and is definitely like to contradict myself (laughs) um does affirm this quote that falling in love is the ultimate act of revolution Mm -hmm. um but like like i said at the beginning like for me like i have to feel through these things and talk through them to get there like just on the surface it sounds absurd if it's not a process of experiencing the world and feeling things and talking through them and all of this stuff mm-hmm. that just like on the face of it, it just is kind of almost meaningless or something mm-hmm. okay you want to end it here yeah okay all right everyone well thanks for listening i didn't prepare anything witty <laughs> to say at the end <laughs> uh, you're preparing all the other times you say something uh no comment <laughs> It's your act of love to look in the mirror and say, like, this time I'm going to say, thanks to all you faceless anarchists, (laughs) next time I'll say. Yeah, Yeah, I have a whole list I wrote down. Wow. That's not true. Okay. I love it. (laughs) All right, everyone. Uh, Have a good day or don't. Whatever works. Or fuck. Doesn't work. I don't know. (laughs) Bye. freedom now an overwhelming sense of urgency above acting freely your actions must be topical and timely anarchist action seems overburdened by a tacit deadline each turn of the media cycle dictating the window of opportunity subject to a volatile public interest fickle attention spans and memories as short as their imaginations narrow time frames limit the horizons of possibility forgoing depth of thought in favor of knee-jerk reactions Time stress induces burnout. Time pressure induces blunders. Forgotten is the anti-spectacular critique that leisurely bides its time, and the anarchist urge to kill time, having the time of our lives, letting motives and consequences be afterthought, so long as you act with haste, so long as your attacks exfoliate infrastructure, hastening its repair and modernization. But if you sit idly, a litany of motives make their nagging appeal, so long as you are unhappy, uneasy, unsettled. Your inability to stop ecocide is expiated by eco-anxiety. Your inability to stop genocide is expiated by survivor's guilt. Time has run out already, many times before. If a fight already lost is not a reason to surrender, why surrender to this affect and not another? Attack? An unrelenting call of duty, explosive attacks and bombastic communiques, a rhetorical stirring of passions, contrasts with the stillness of a sea of passivity. Propaganda of the deed seeks to jar you out of your apathy, as if giving a fuck would impede impending cataclysms. Emotional appeal, manipulation, and blackmail. Morality expects your actions and hostility as sacrifice. If that doesn't sound so nice, maybe one of its guises will suffice. Is it now instead an ethics, a set of deeply held values and convictions, or a set of strong aesthetic preferences and passions? More insidiously, is it disguised as arbitrary metrics of effectiveness to guide avowedly amoral actions toward a revolutionary goal? Machiavellian machinations predicating self-renunciation, delayed gratification, and the ultimate sacrifice for a utopian horizon. Instead of that, it is a fear of mortality, 
of weakness, of lack of status, of irrelevance, of aging. The inability to bear the dread of ill fate with grace. A legacy of destruction seeks remembrance, seeking immortality via immolation, notoriety, or martyrdom. Life-denying affirmation of a will. Looking under rocks for lost causes to die for, hungry, cold, alone, and far away from home. Like a shooting star burnt rapidly into a pebble, sending a ripple across a tepid milieu. One could think of better things to do than blowing up inside a dingy bureau. Live freely and let evil live. Lone wolves could not be so lonely if they were as selfless and generous with their affection as with their aggression if they loved with the same reckless abandon as they lash out against an uncaring world. Terrorists paint the world in the drab palette of fear and dread with mutilated screams, dismembered bodies, and rubble. The holy war on terror feeds back off the panic they instill. Integral to the loop, moral crusaders seeking to vanquish evil. The part not said out loud about tolerating difference, about abolishing policing, incarceration, and extermination. No one will account for the disproportional, indiscriminate hostilities beyond the structures of morality and the excesses of lives without measure. Good intentions fail against everyday cruelty and neglect. In a planet rife with authoritarians, industrialists, capitalists, and all sorts of bigots, fascists creep and they live among us, free to run rampant and wreak havoc and less opposed. Perhaps it's best they are evaded when possible, lest opposition become a full-time job. Only death could provide a release, duty-bound until all are free. Hate Watch binge Hate Watch's hate crimes, a calendar full of counter-demos. Protests are mediated, counter-protests doubly so. Demonstrations are at best self-expression and catharsis. Counter-demos are at their base shouting matches that may escalate into street fights. Love is an afterthought. After the world is first split into hated enemies, the remainder affiliating according to affinity, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, neglected souls huddled for warmth in the cold barracks of a common struggle. When does organized self-defense become do-gooders persecuting of wrongdoers, right-thinkers persecuting wrong-think, moral entrepreneurs enforcing conformity to norms and punishing deviance? Though many a thing may be cause for concern, When has panic been of aid in addressing them? When has freedom benefited from moral panics? Witch hunts turn free spirits into folk devils, scapegoats used to fearmonger. An anarchist is not a paragon of truth and virtue. An anarchist lives freely and lets evil live, a lived tension without haste for release. May you be a survivor, not a spent bullet casing or a warmonger. May fear and hatred never cloud your motives and steal your initiative. May a sense of duty or moral calculus never lead to sacrifice again. May attack and revenge only exist as self-indulgence, never as self-renunciation. May a sense of urgency never mess with your own timing and sense of rhythm. May your pursuits be for their own sake, never in the service of panic. For words and deeds of different kinds, beyond the flattened realm of text and tactics, may you spend less chastising those you hate, than lavishing those you love. That was Panic? Attack? By Anonymous.
moet Nederland Amerika proef worden gemaakt. Mij kijk op de oorlog in Oekraïne van 6 tot 14 februari 2024. De afgelopen tien dagen sinds mijn vorige update zijn gekenmerkt door de vervanging van de Oekraïnse topgeneraal Salushny, de inzet van het nieuwste hypersone Russische wapen de Zirkom tegen de stad Kiev en de klassieke maffia-retoriek van president-kandidaat Trump in de VS. De uitspraken van Trump... Als je niet betaalt, lever ik je uit aan de vijand, hebben Europese politici in de gordijnen gejaagd. De discussie die twee weken geleden nog ging over de bouw van een ijzeren gordijn op de oostrand van de NAVO, krijgt daar nu een dimensie bij. Zijn de Amerikanen nog te vertrouwen? Wat moeten we aan met die NAVO en wat stelt artikel 5 nog voor? De stemmen die een Europese atoommacht willen, worden luider. De oorlog in Oekraïne leidt tot grote veranderingen, zoals de verwachte botsing van de grootmachten. En dat brengt me op de volgende punten. De Amerikaanse discussie, de hypersone Circon-raket, oorlogsmoeheid in Oekraïne, machtsstrijd in Oekraïne, koude oorlog, Amerika-proof en de botsing van grootmachten. De Amerikaanse discussie. De reis van de rechtse Amerikaanse journalist Tucker Carlson naar Moskou was goed voor een nieuwtje. Carlson is naar Poetin geweest om een interview te houden en zijn visie over de oorlog te vragen. Poetin meldde dat hij wil onderhandelen over het eind van de oorlog. En het Russische aanbod tot onderhandelingen werd per kerende post afgewezen door de Amerikanen. Het gesprek was voornamelijk bedoeld voor de rechtse Amerikaanse parlementsleden die geen zin meer hebben om Amerikaans geld ter beschikking te stellen voor wapens in Oekraïne. Het gesprek werd gehouden op het moment dat het Amerikaanse parlement in twee kamers met elkaar in de contramine is over extra subsidie voor wapens voor Oekraïne. De Amerikaanse positie is niet veranderd in de afgelopen tien dagen. Dat wil zeggen, een eerste stemming in de Amerikaanse Senaat over een totaalpakket aan militaire middelen voor meerdere problemen wereldwijd is wel degelijk aangenomen. Het moet voor een tweede lezing echter nu naar het Huis van Afgevaardigden. En de voorzitter van dat huis heeft nog weinig aandrang om het plan ter stemming te brengen. Hij wil nog wat andere dingen voor elkaar krijgen en het is politiek onwil. In die tussentijd ontbreekt het Oekraïne aan verse toevoer van wapens. En dat betekent dat de ontwikkeling van een nieuwe strategie waar ik vorige keer de contouren van ontwaarde, niet verder kan worden uitgewerkt, gewoon omdat er niet voldoende geld is. Ten tweede, de Zirkon-raket. De oorlog gaat in alle genadeloosheid door en Rusland heeft voor het eerst... Volgens de experts een hypersone Zirkon-raket afgevuurd op Kiev. Deze raket gaat zeven maal sneller dan het geluid en is de snelste, of de beste, is een soort. Het wapen maakt het zelfs de beste luchtafweer die Oekraïne ter beschikking staat moeilijk om effectief een aanvallend projectiel uit te schakelen. En dat is slecht nieuws voor Oekraïne, omdat het voor de bescherming van de bevolking en de wapenindustrie van groot belang is dat de Russische drone- en raketaanvallen worden uitgeschakeld voor ze doel treffen. De Russische aanvallen zijn ook de laatste tien dagen weer op volle kracht uitgevoerd. En langs het front heeft Oekraïne grote moeite om de linie te houden. Vooral bij het plaatsje Avdivka rukken de Russen op, ondanks grote verliezen, meter voor meter. Oorlogsmoeheid in Oekraïne. Onlangs verscheen het resultaat van een opiniepeiling gehouden onder de Oekraïnse bevolking. En ondanks de moeilijkheidsgraad van het houden van een representatieve enquête onder een bevolking die voor een aanzienlijk deel is gevlucht en verder leidt onder luchtaanvallen en onheilsberichten over dood en verwonding van geliefden of kennissen, is het toch gehouden. Het onderzoek is gehouden in november. Toen, moest het nog, toen was het nog niet toegegeven dat het contraoffensief mislukt was. De hoofdconclusies van het onderzoek zijn dat de oorlogsmoeheid onder de bevolking toeneemt. Een groeiende groep, nu 42%, verwacht dat de oorlog langer dan een jaar zal duren. Een derde van de ondervraagden, 33%, weet het gewoon niet. Dat laatste cijfer is het enige constante cijfer in de vijf keer dat het onderzoek is gehouden in de laatste twee jaar. Een groeiende groep, nu een grote minderheid van 42%, is voorstander van onderhandelingen. En dat is een groeiend cijfer, eh, hoewel in mei 2022 was het een meerderheid van 55% en daarna zakt het aantal voorstanders van een politieke oplossing weg. En nu groeit het weer. De helft van de ondervraagden heeft kennissen onder de gesneuvelden en mentale klachten nemen toe. Dat brengt mij op de machtsstrijd in Oekraïne.
De strijd om de macht in Oekraïne wordt manifester. Na weken van geruchten heeft president Zelensky opperbevelhebber Zalushny ontslagen. Een verzoek om de eer aan zichzelf te houden heeft Zalushny geweigerd. De vraag is wat van de allang aangekondigde vervanging van generaal Zalushny terechtkomt. Generaal Sierski volgt hem op. Kan hij betere resultaten bereiken militair gesproken? En Zalushny publiceerde op 1 februari nog een nieuwe strategie. Onduidelijk is wat Sierski daarmee gaat doen. De algemene berichtgeving is dat de nieuwe bevelhebber, Sierski dus, net als president Zelensky, grote waarde hecht aan vooruitgang en overwinningen die allemaal worden benut voor het goede oorlogsnieuws. Zalushny hechtte minder aan kleine overwinningen. Hij wilde nuttige vooruitgang. Dat meningsverschil en het verlies vorig jaar van de stad Bagmoed en nu waarschijnlijk van de stad Avdivka hebben hem zijn baan gekost. Bovendien zijn er geruchten dat Zalushny eigen geheime contacten had met zowel hoge officials in de VS als een nog opvallender met de Russische bevelhebber. Dat zouden de achterliggende redenen zijn van het ontslag van Zalushny. Met het afwijzen van iedere onderhandeling over het beëindigen van de oorlog en in tegendeel de wil om hem te verlengen neemt president Zelensky het risico dat hij uiteindelijk niets overhoudt. Het volgende is de Koude Oorlog. Op 4 januari jongstleden gaf de hoogste generaal in Nederland, Eichelsheim, een lang interview aan NRC. Daarin schiep hij een somber beeld over de oorlog in Oekraïne en het risico van Russische overwinning. In de vijf weken die er sindsdien verstreken zijn, is er een discussie over de gevaren waarin Nederland of Europa zich zouden bevinden. De Russen zullen een klein NAVO land aanvallen als je het moet geloven. En de Chinezen slagen erin om de computers van het ministerie van Defensie in Nederland te infiltreren. Als gevolg daarvan militariseert de discussie in Nederland in rap tempo. Er is weinig analyse over de stand van de oorlog en weinig discussie over doel en middelen. Hoe moet het verder met, andere, met Oekraïne? Wat is gewenst? Wat is eigenlijk de meest effectieve Nederlandse en Westerse militaire of andere steun? Er is geen analyse over de Oekraïnse kansen in de oorlog. Er worden alleen militaire middelen ter sprake gebracht. Diplomatieke middelen? Nee. Politieke middelen? Ook niet. America Proof. Als gevolg van de recente uitspraken van de Amerikaanse presidentskandidaat Trump, namelijk NAVO-leden moeten minstens 2% van het bruto binnenlands product aan defensie uitgeven, anders mag Poetin ze aanvallen, is er een schokgolf door de Europese hoofdsteden getrokken. Er zijn een paar beleidsopties, zo snel mogelijk voldoen aan Trumps eis. Of versterking van de Europese poot van de NAVO. Of een Europese militaire macht, al dan niet met eigen kernwapens. Dat leidt ertoe dat in de Tweede Kamer, afgelopen dinsdag, door Katy Piri van GroenLinks PvdA, gepleit is voor het Amerika-proof maken van ons veiligheidsbeleid. En ik citeer, Trump drukt ons nog eens met de neus op de feiten. Willen we de NAVO en de bijstandsverplichting in stand houden, dan zal Europa eindelijk serieus moeten werk moeten maken van de versterking van de Europese pijler van het bondgenootschap. Dat dit betreft ook de nucleaire dimensie en de rol van de Franse en Britse kernwapens. Daar hoort ook voldoen aan de norm van 2% bij. Al dus, einde citaat, Katy Piri. En ook de nieuwe lijn van GroenLinks PvdA. Geen onderhandelingen, Europese kernwapens. Ten slotte, botsende grootmachten. Dit alles betekent dat de oorlog in minder dan twee jaar tot de door mij verwachte botsing van grootmachten leidt. Niet alleen tussen Rusland en en de VS, of China en het Westen, of de groei van de BRICS-landen, maar tot botsing en barsten en rafels in de NAVO. Tot 24 februari op het spui in Amsterdam. At around 10.30 p.m. on May 29, 2020, a crowd of more than a thousand people gathered in North Portland's Peninsula Park and marched downtown to the Justice Center, headquarters of the Portland Police Bureau. The direct inspirations for the march were the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Many in attendance also had a strong desire to express solidarity with protesters in Minneapolis. That's what brought Chris Wise, a volunteer protest medic, out into the streets that first night. Initially, I came out because as an African-American, you know, 
it was the that straw that broke the camel's back on just like one death too many. We are murdered by police and other law enforcement agencies at a rate of three to one when compared to the average white American. And those numbers get a little funky because, you know, obviously more white people die a year than black people in police-related shootings. But there are also, you know, six times as many white people uh, than black people. Tristan, another black Portlander, didn't go out that night, but he watched everything that happened on the live streams. Honestly, like my my first... Um, impression was that it probably wasn't going to be much. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't expect it to blow up the way it did. I kind of felt like, because I've, I've seen it happen in the past where, you know, there's, there'll be some kind of like uh, something happening like nationwide or another city. And Portland will kind of like, you know, show up in solidarity for it. And it might become something, but usually it's kind of like a one-off. So that's kind of what I was expecting. And so I was pretty surprised to see, like, how quickly it grew and then also how, like, how the police were responding, like, in, like, a very tear gas kind of way. Mariah is a photojournalist and a lifestyle photographer. She was out at Peninsula Park for the very start of the march. It was the beginning to, you know, (laughs) something that not not a lot of us knew we were going to get into, you know. But, um, gosh, I remember being at Peninsula Park and it was really great to see everyone there. And like, it just reminds me of some, uh, I hate that it's like a routine thing for us. Cause it's, you know, why we're still fighting and why we've been fighting so strong. But you know, when someone gets killed by, you know, via police brutality, everyone meets up, you know, maybe we protest for a few days and like, you know, quote unquote, we go back to like normal life, but you know, we already haven't been in normal life since it's been a pandemic this whole freaking year. But it was really beautiful to see all the people and all the signs and the speeches. The sidewalks bordering Peninsula Park were filled with different slogans and exhortations written in chalk. One of the most striking statements was, make the moment count. As it turned out, the city of Portland took that to heart. The crowd at Peninsula Park marched nearly five miles to downtown Portland. There they merged with a crowd that had gathered around the Justice Center. The moment both groups met was powerful. You could taste the energy in the air. Portland's 2020 Black Lives Matter protests had actually started several days earlier, before that mass gathering on the 29th. A handful of activists of color had begun occupying the steps of the Justice Center immediately after George Floyd's murder. One of them was Tracy Molina, an indigenous Portlander better known as Koska. Well, I remember it wasn't not long after the George Floyd story broke, a lot of us wanted to do something here, but I think most of the regular organizers kept saying, wait, you know, let's wait, let's wait for this, let's wait for that. And then finally, um, then Danielle James, you, I think you're, she's a, a pretty prominent black activist in this community and stood up against Patriot Prayer and Proud Boys and other white supremacists for years. Um, was kind of the, the spark for that. You know, she said, like, we shouldn't wait in the night. Supporter, I said, I don't think we should wait either. I think we should do something now. And so we ended up on the 27th at 10.30, all meeting at ICE and starting the protest there. And then we moved um, sometime after midnight. We moved over to the Justice Center and slept on the steps there and planned to to occupy it as long as we could. And so we stayed there. And then... um, there was only maybe like four of us that slept on the steps. And then the next day, like at ICE, we had about 30 to 40 people. And then the next day, after we stayed on those steps, I would say there was about 40 or 50 people that showed up in the afternoon and they did a direct action where we blocked off the streets in, in front of the um, steps of the Justice Center. And I think they did it also did a die in. And that night, there was also an impromptu direct action where some people... Some young women sat on uh, sat in the doorway of the justice center, and they brought riot police out for that. And there was at the time there was only about twenty of us, and only like six people participating in the sit-in. But they still brought riot police out, and they were violently removed. 
that made the news because one of the women, one of the women that was hit with a baton, she was actually pregnant, a black woman. And the only reason why I know that for sure is because after she was in the ambulance, she came, I don't know if she went to the hospital, but after she was in the ambulance, she returned paperwork from the ambulance, proving that she was pregnant and was, you know, showing that some of the police officers that were still standing around. But yeah, that's how the first few days went. And then, um, then the, we, we all, um, we're going to have a rally at, um, Peninsula Park. And then I agreed to do part of the opening. And when I was there, I, more and more people kept coming and I was surprised that there were so many, I don't know, maybe a thousand people there. I don't know. There was a lot, there was a lot of people there. I was surprised and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. The now-merged crowd, which numbered at least a couple of thousand people, marched back to the Justice Center. For a few minutes, they stood outside, chanting George Floyd's name. The police were nowhere to be seen. While most of the crowd stood out in the street, a hundred or so people gathered in front of the windows of the Justice Center. They started spray-painting slogans on the glass. A few people peed on the doorway. Someone lit a small fire out in front. And then, quite suddenly... One person broke a window. The first broken window set off a frenzy, and soon people were using their feet, rocks, and any tools they could find to shatter every exposed piece of glass on the building. With the window shattered, protesters ran into the Justice Center, ransacking police offices and setting small fires. The Portland police arrived a little bit later and began showering the crowd with tear gas and flashbang grenades. Though no one knew it at the time, events had just been set into motion that would lead to more than a hundred consecutive nights of protests and tear gas. The Portland Uprising had begun. We crooked. We should probably start by talking a bit about the definition of a riot. Legally, anything the cops declare a riot is a riot. May 29th is generally referred to as Riot Night because, after the crowd was dispersed from the Justice Center, hundreds of people ran through the streets of Portland's luxury shopping district, smashing up high-end chain stores while the police chased after them. It certainly felt like a riot, but a number of the folks that we interviewed actually disagreed. Alan Kessler, a Portland-based lawyer, pushed back on that description. I guess I disagree that even the first night was a real riot. Okay. I mean, there were... Some shops got uh, burgled. There were there were some things stolen. Um, there was a fire in the in the IJC. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that that. I don't I don't know the intent there, right? Like lo- looking at the fire, looking at the piddly fires I've seen. I don't know if anybody means to burn the buildings down or to. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it didn't seem like it. It doesn't seem it. If I were going to burn down a building, I would use a hell of a lot more accelerant yeah. uh, than it seems like people are using. Um, I don't know. Uh, I was struck by even on even on that night. I was struck by. Uh, excuse me. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of want to clip that. Use a whole lot more accelerant out of context. <laughs> Yeah, please don't. <laughs> Alan Kessler says. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trusting you all. Yeah. The freedom's in your hands. No, um, no, we're, we're piping this straight to Andy. <laughs> so, um, no, even that night I was struck by Commissioner Fritz, uh, who I have absolutely no love for, uh, who seemed just horrified that, that Gucci got robbed. <laughs> And uh, and didn't seem able to to put that in any kind of context. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I didn't, I didn't see that as a riot. I didn't think that people uh, wanted to just break shit. I think even then, it was it was still it's political. It was it was a protest, and it you know, I I wouldn't recommend that people break stuff or steal stuff or set stuff on fire. But I understood the upset, and I yeah, I I just didn't see it in those terms. Um, it didn't seem like, I don't remember that anybody 
died. I'm sure somebody was hurt, uh, but I don't remember that it was particularly severe that evening. Like I don't, I don't remember that as a, no, as a violent night. I remember it as a night of property damage. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. And I wasn't making a legal distinct. That was more of a moral argument. Sure. Like I think people put a moral import behind riot and it, I don't think it was that. I don't think it was, I don't think it was a breakdown in civilization. I think it was a, uh, extremely heartfelt, uh, frustration, uh, with a system that wasn't, uh, meeting people's needs. Max Smith, a Portland based activist and live streamer called it a riot light. I called it like a riot light that night. I think I was like, that seems like a little kind of a riot light. They broke a couple windows, you know, they, they sacked the Apple store, of course, you know, some opportunity is going to, you know, take that opportunity if something's if things are getting broken someone's gonna rob the apple store it's 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 dumb because you're gonna get caught but go ahead and rob the apple store but um you know that's kind of what i thought of it like some stuff's gonna get broken that's what happened and i actually thought the police you know i thought that and i actually thought there was going to be some change which we saw a couple of things like they started talking about you know uh, canceling the, the uh, dvrt and the cops in schools and things like that and uh, and since then, it's, it's it's been fairly tame, and we haven't seen a whole lot of progress. So, you know, I felt like it worked a little bit. The point Mac made is one that a lot of activists would agree with. Property damage, they argue, is not nearly in the same moral realm as injuring or killing human beings. Mac himself was not out on the 29th, but he was most directly inspired to start protesting because of something else that happened that day, hundreds of miles south of Portland, in San Jose, California. There was a guy named Derek Sanderlin in San Jose, and he was protesting for, you know, he was protesting against the murder of George Floyd in, in solidarity with Minneapolis. And I remember waking up and getting on my phone and kind of just flicking through things and seeing that this man had been shot in the testicles with a rubber bullet. And it like required like emergency surgery and like, he's probably never going to have kids. And I'm looking at this dude and he's like a 27 years old. He's like a black dude. He's got dreads. He wears glasses. He's got a, a scrappy ass beard like mine, <laughs> you know, and I'm looking at this guy like, man, that could have been me. And then I keep reading and he was like, he was like a teacher. He taught the police about like, not targeting people or whatever, or like, you know, de-escalation tactics or whatever. And I'm like, you're telling me they shot a dude that, that trains them. Like, this has got to be one of the craziest things I've ever heard in my life. And he could have died from this, you know? And that just made me so mad. And I was like, it's even if it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't me, it could have been me if I would have been out there. And so I was just like, that's insane. Like this should not be a thing at all. This should ne- this just this this can't be real. Many protesters and some journalists will argue that most of the riots Portland saw this summer were not cases of protesters rioting, but were instead cop riots. After all, if people breaking windows and looting an Apple store is a riot, then police driving into crowds, throwing grenades at random, and tear gassing hundreds of innocent motorists probably counts as a riot too, right? This is the Portland Police Bureau. This has been declared a riot. We crooked. May 29th was not the first night of Portland's BLM protests, but it was the night that set the tone for the next hundred-plus nights. There was tear gas, flashbangs, armored cops fighting demonstrators who were armed with, in the beginning, cardboard signs and water bottles. Now, we're going to cover a lot of ground in this series, and it's probably best to kick this off by giving everyone an overview of what exactly happened in Portland from late May to the end of September, because the mainstream media only really showed a portion of this story. Late on the night of the 29th, the people of Portland learned that their mayor, Ted Wheeler, had actually been out of town visiting his mother. His first response to what had happened was a tweet that started with the word ENOUGH in all caps and ended with a promise that he was COMING BACK NOW. NOW was also in all caps. 
City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, who was acting president in the mayor's absence, declared a state of emergency and enacted a curfew from 8 p.m. until 6 a.m. At this point, Portland was in the same boat as many other American cities, including New York and Los Angeles. In Portland, the curfew was not enough to clamp down on unrest. Quite the opposite, in fact. Local activists like DSA member Olivia Cotby-Smith were inspired. I just thought that it was it was not like anything I'd ever seen before. I'd never seen that level of um, destruction happen at a protest before. It was exciting. I was like, we're going to start. This is huge. This is going to take off all across the country. It's happening in Portland. It's happening in Minneapolis. Like, this is the start of a revolution. Um, you know, and even knowing that that might not be true, that that's the feeling that I had that night. Several thousand people gathered again on the 30th, and on the 31st, nearly 10,000 Portlanders marched to the Justice Center. We actually sort of organized a protest behind the scenes um, and got like 10,000 people across the bridge, which was awesome. Um, and yeah, it was just, it felt like the, the sky was the limit at that point, like, I can't believe there are 10,000 people showing up every single night. Like, this has never happened before. Uh, We have to turn this into something. Both times, police eventually dispersed the crowd with indiscriminate tear gas use and liberal clubbing with truncheons. Thousands of protesters were gassed, but so were hundreds of motorists who happened to be out on city streets, and dozens of houseless individuals who were gassed in their tents for no apparent reason. The curfew was rescinded in early June. It clearly hadn't helped. Next, the city began to build what would become a massive fence around the Justice Center. The protest movement started to splinter between a large group of demonstrators who engaged in daily marches that avoided police contact and a smaller group who repeatedly confronted police at the fence. At first, Portland police would gas and grenade any group of people that drew close to the fence, along with any motorists who happened to be driving nearby. Protesters started calling it the sacred fence because law enforcement seemed to value it more than the physical well-being of Portlanders. The first fence war between protesters and police lasted most of June. There were occasional protests at other police buildings, like the PPA, headquarters of the Portland Police Union, and the North Precinct. Smaller groups of activists also engaged in what was briefly a nationwide practice of pulling down statues of famous white supremacists. On June 18th, a small number of mostly teenage Portlanders toppled a statue of George Washington. This prompted President Trump to create an executive order to protect statues, monuments, and federal property. He sent dozens of federal agents to Portland to enforce this new order. The first time the feds made a large appearance was on July 4th. That night was a turning point for a number of reasons. After weeks of declining numbers, more than a thousand Portlanders showed up outside the Justice Center to shoot commercial-grade fireworks at its windows. They fired a few at the adjacent federal courthouse as well. The police LRAD, a car-mounted loudspeaker, started warning everyone not to shoot the courthouse. So, of course, the entire crowd swarmed around the building and continued shooting it with fireworks. Suddenly, wooden hatches opened up on the front of the fortress-like building, and the federal agents inside began tossing out tear gas grenades and shooting impact munitions into the crowd. For a few minutes, the scene resembled a cross between an acid trip and a medieval siege, with protesters bombarding the courthouse with fireworks while the feds inside pumped out gas and riot munitions. This is the... Oh, Jesus Christ! Yeah. Friday night, everybody. Eventually, the fight spilled out into the street, and for several hours, Portland police and Department of Homeland Security agents engaged in a running battle with hundreds of protesters. Fireworks provided the activists with their first weapon that could disrupt a police riot line, while law enforcement responded by escalating physical violence even further. I was walking up from the JC up towards the park blocks. And there was a person who was essentially having an asthma attack and a cloud of tear gas. And they had one buddy with them. And it was just such an impossible project for that one buddy to sort of haul them out of tear gas while they're having an asthma attack and like a panic attack and really having a rough time. Everything got more serious after the 4th. Federal agents started responding to protests downtown more often than the Portland Police Bureau. A week later, federal agents almost killed a protester named Donovan Labella by shooting him in the forehead with a less lethal round. Slowly, the mainstream media began to realize that something strange and terrifying was happening in Portland. The national interest was finally peaked a few days later, when camo-clad feds in a rental van started kidnapping people off the streets. 
In early July, the fourth accepted, most nightly protests only numbered a few dozen to a hundred or so protesters. But national media and the specter of federal snatch vans panicked Portland's liberal majority. By mid-late July, thousands upon thousands of protesters were showing up in the street every night. The time between July 18th to the 30th, dubbed the Fed War, is the stuff most Americans saw from Portland in the news. Moms and dads, veterans, doctors, chefs and students gathering in front of the federal courthouse, chanting demands, banging on doors, setting fires, ripping off plywood covering the windows, and repeatedly tearing down that massive fence. Whenever the federal agents came out, a shield wall of protesters would form, deflecting metal tear gas canisters and flashbangs up into the air. People armed with leaf blowers directed gas back at the feds. In response, the feds started using experimental new weapons, including a pesticide sprayer jerry-rigged to spew poison gas. Seeing the police attack people, especially the feds, when the feds came, when they came and started attacking people like, like in the smoke after I got like a gas mask and started going into the smoke, you know, and seeing what was yeah. going on in there, I was pretty, I was pretty uh, disturbed by seeing the way that they were like beating people <laughs> under the uh, under the cover of tear gas, that was um, that was a surprise for me. I'd heard people saying oh, I got my ass kicked in there, but I didn't know it was going down like that. As July came and went, so did the visible federal presence downtown. Most of the more liberal types packed it up, calling the protests a success. But while the days of walls of camouflaged feds had temporarily ended, despite reports of their withdrawal, federal presence in Portland lingered on for weeks. Dedicated activists were not fooled by the faux withdrawal. They knew the work was far from over. Throughout August, protesters gathered in front of police precincts, city buildings, and Portland's ICE facility. Sometimes they engaged in property damage, but more often they just stood in the street, yelling at the cops until they were inevitably charged by riot lines. It was in August that Portland first saw right-wing counter-protests, generally framed as Back the Blue or MAGA gatherings. Sometimes these escalated into street brawls between Proud Boys and left-wing activists. On several occasions, Proud Boys and other right-wing vigilantes threw homemade explosives and shot. Paintball guns into crowds. Live rounds were even fired into the air and into crowds. The escalation continued until a Trump caravan of vehicles waving flags drove through Portland in late August. Several Trump supporters fired paintball guns and mace into the crowds as they drove by. The whole awful day ended with a member of the right-wing street gang, Patriot Prayer, being shot and killed by a white BLM activist after charging him with a can of mace. Throughout all this, Portland's BLM marches occurred every single night, right up until late September, when a series of devastating wildfires overwhelmed Oregon and blanketed the city of Portland in a thick haze of poison. The nightly marches were halted, and the various mutual aid organizations that had started up to service the protests turned their efforts to meeting the needs of evacuees. Meanwhile, right-wing activists blamed the fires on Antifa and spent several days setting up illegal armed checkpoints and threatening people with rifles. When the rains came and the air cleared, the protests started up again. They were no longer nightly affairs, but they've remained regular occurrences ever since. And all of this begs the question, why Portland? All 50 U.S. states hosted Black Lives Matter protests during the summer of 2020. Many cities saw mass demonstrations. And while 93% of BLM protests were considered peaceful, numerous cities saw rioting, exchanges of gunfire, and even had buildings burnt down. But no city in the United States had as many continuous nights of protest as Portland. No city saw thousands of its citizens lay a weeks-long siege of a federal courthouse. No city experienced a thousand-person street fight between right- and left-wing demonstrators. Perhaps most importantly, no city earned the ire of President Donald Trump in the same way as Portland. It seems bizarre that this all would happen in Portland, a small city of about 653,000 people. How did it grow to become one of the most active front lines in a national battle for black lives and against white supremacy? It actually makes a lot of sense once you scratch beneath the surface a bit. Here's Tristan again. Oregon was kind of 
um, founded as like something of like a white utopia, you know, like a place for the the white man to really like find his destiny, right? And like conquer this, you know, this continent. And I think that's just kind of like it's just like baked into the culture here, where even like even like the love of the outdoors isn't like isn't like a love of um like keep like keeping the environment like healthy and like balanced it's just like a very like commodified like we deserve this you know we deserve to live in this beautiful place and we're the only ones who know how to like take care of it and obviously that's like mellowed out a little bit over the you know decades but i think that's still basically like what what like um it's like the undercurrent you know that's like behind most of what goes on in oregon you can learn a lot of what you need to know about oregon's history of racism by studying one of the state's founders peter hardman burnett as a young man in tennessee he murdered a black person with a booby trap as revenge for petty theft In 1843, he helped organize the first great wagon train of white people that headed to the Oregon Territory. He was elected to the Provisional Legislature and served as the territory's first Supreme Court justice. In 1844, he worked to pass what became known as Burnett's Lash Law. This stated that all black people were required to leave Oregon under penalty of being whipped in public, not less than 20 or more than 39 stripes. This punishment was to be repeated every six months until they moved. The law did include a grace period, three years for black women and two years for black men. Burnett also pushed to ban Chinese immigration into Oregon. While there are no documented instances of the lash laws being used, it set a clear tone for the state. Burnett's lash law reflected the values of the first white people who moved to Oregon. They were abolitionists in that they hated slavery, but they only hated slavery because they were revolted by the thought of living near black people. In 1848, the Oregon territorial government passed a law that banned any, quote, Negro or mulatto from living in Oregon. In 1850, the Oregon Donation Land Act gave whites and half-breed Indians their, quote, 650 acres of land from the government. All other people of color were banned from the land grants. Oregon was finally made a state in February 1859. Under its constitution, quote, No free Negro or mulatto not residing in this state at the time of the adoption of this constitution shall ever come, reside, or be within this state, or hold any real estate, or make any contract, or maintain any suit therein, and the legislative assembly shall provide by penal laws for the removal by public officers of all such free Negroes and mulattoes, and for their effectual exclusion from the state, and for the punishment of persons who shall bring them into the state, or employ or harbor them therein. Oregon remains the only state in the Union that ever banned black people from living there. Now, things have gotten better since 1859, but better is a low bar, and Portland remains the whitest metropolitan area in the United States. 77% of the population is white. Less than 6% is black. Today, Portland owns the distinction as one of the most gentrified cities in the United States. Oregon continues to report some of the worst graduation rates for black students in the nation, and the wealth gap between white and black Oregonians over the last 50 years has widened, not shrunk. I moved to Portland like uh, like five and a half, six years ago, I think. And From where? I definitely, I did, uh, from Northern California. Gotcha. Uh, Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really, I didn't have a idea of what the city was per se. Like I'd never seen a, an episode of Portlandia, for instance. I just kind of moved up here. I had to be closer to family. <clears throat> and, and yeah, when I, when I kind of first got here, it was like, you know, that hang out with a bunch of like hippies, like a bunch of like people who love trees and to ride bikes and go hiking. And it's like, oh, they love the environment and they love progressive you know politics and you know and everything's just chill but then like the longer i stayed here the 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 facade started to like fall away and yeah and it's i mean i I, like i've been here for you know almost six years now and i still i don't quite know what to make of it still you know but like recently um like with the passage of or like with the most recent like 
election, you know, like so the local measures that passed and went and didn't pass. Mm-hmm. It's like, like Oregon loves to have a black friend. Like that's <laughs> what they like. They like to have somebody they can point to and be like, look, I'm not racist, but they don't, they're not interested in actually like challenging the like white supremacist, like power structures that actually like benefit them. And, and if you like, if you agitate them on that, they just, you know, that's, that's when like the, the Pacific Northwest, like passive aggressiveness, like kicks in and they just like, kind of like try to ignore you. But secretly they're totally fucking pissed off that you dare to like insinuate that they're racist. Um, but yeah, that's like, it's a really complicated thing. And I, I still quite haven't figured out like what makes white people tick here, but it's, you know, it's messy. Another activist we interviewed, Courtney, is an indigenous Hawaiian person who moved to Oregon when she was 17. She recalls being stunned by how white her school was. I like ended up going to Oregon City High School, which was like insane. I was the only non-Hispanic person that was at that school. Um, and nobody talked to me for a really long time. And I just was kind of like, it was a culture shock because there were so many white people that I had never seen this many white people in my entire life because everyone in Hawaii is like mixed races. Majority of them are Asian or Polynesian. So, um, I definitely was, nobody really talked to me for a while and I kind of like found my little niche of people to hang out with. Um, but yeah, like just even living in that area, uh, I would get a lot of weird looks and, um, yeah, just not the most friendly people to, to be around. Um, yeah, that's basically, it's just a culture shock to just see how, white Oregon is. Yeah. I just, I didn't expect it at all. I didn't. And I was like, I knew that there were going to be like Hispanic people, but I just didn't realize that. Um, I thought maybe I would see more after like black people. Yeah. And then, and especially living in a city, you know, in Port, when you're in from Hawaii and you're like, Portland is just like a major city in the United States. And then coming here and not really seeing the mix of cultures was just kind of shocking. Tristan described the racism in Portland as unique in a subtle way. It's just, it's very, it's very covert or, you know, it tries to be very covert. Um, and it's very like, like, well, part, part of what it is is that for a very long time now, there have barely been any people of color here at all. Like, you know, it's one of the widest states in the country. It's the widest major city in the country. And so like, to a certain extent, people are, they just don't actually know what, like, you know, like, what, like, a microaggression is or what, what that would be. Like, you know, I had to experience, um, like, just, like, a year, year and a half ago, maybe, I was out with this group, um, these, like, forest defender type people, and every year they go out and post this big camp out and, you know, like go out into the woods and do like surveys and stuff like that and try to collect data they can use to, to fight temper companies and shit. And like someone just dropped the N word, like just five feet from me, just like in casual conversation. And then I had to like address the camp, like at breakfast. And I was like, okay, so just, just don't, don't say that word. Like there's no, like e- like I like even if you're just telling a story, like there's no appropriate context for a white person to say that, and and that's one of the reasons why I don't go to those fucking campouts anymore. But like it's like that. It's like they just don't. They haven't been around black people or people of color in general, and they just don't know what to do. And of course, the racism that pervades Portland is present in the Portland Police Bureau. Despite black people making up, again, less than 6% of the population, Portland police use force on black people more often than people of any other race. Portland police are 5 to 14 times more likely to shoot impact munitions at and to forcibly restrain black residents. 
At one point in the late 60s, black Portlanders accounted for nearly half of PPB's arrests. Portland's black community has been fighting against this kind of racist violence for decades. Here's Max Smith again. For me, the battle with the police began, you know, in the hip hop field. Um, there was an event here in Portland that happened maybe six or seven years ago um, that happened at a venue called.